Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. While this team has unmatched experience and accomplishments, they also reflect the idea that we cannot meet these challenges with old thinking and unchanged habits. For example, we're going to have the first woman lead the intelligence community, the first Latino, an immigrant, to lead the Department of Homeland Security and a groundbreaking diplomat at the United Nations. The Department of Homeland Security has a noble mission to help keep us safe and to advance our proud history as a country of welcome. I think it's going to be important to recognize that the, the confidence that our allies had and the world had in American leadership is not going to be restored overnight. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Joe Biden has won the election and Trump has lost, both for the 142nd time in a week. And this time, for the first time, Trump well and truly knows that even if he can only talk in strange tweets about protocols and nevertheless. Yes, I'm referring to Trump's two tweets on Monday, and I want to focus on that word, nevertheless. Trump begins his two-tweet thread by thanking Emily Murphy, the enigmatic Bartleby the Scrivener of the General Services Administration, who, you'll remember, when confronted with doing her job, that's ascertaining who the next president will be, said, I'd prefer not to. Well, finally on Monday, she said in a sulky letter that she'd petulantly push the paper forward and Biden and Harris could begin their transition and start getting us out of the dire straits Trump got us in. Anyway, Trump thanked Murphy for her loyalty to him, I mean, our country, and then complained about how besieged she'd been by people asking her to do her job. I know I personally got a bounce back when I emailed Emily the Scrivener at her government email address asking that she sign, so I guess I'm not one of the harassers, and it seems she also blocked me on Instagram and TikTok, but I digress. Anyway, Trump then tweeted, our case strongly continues, and we will keep up the good fight, and I believe we will prevail. Nevertheless, nevertheless. Blather, 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 I'll ask Emily to do what needs to be done with regard to initial protocols and have my team do the same, but it's the nevertheless that's key. Remember when Trump said he wanted to ask the president of Ukraine to, quote, do us a favor, though, unquote. Well, that suggested a turn, that though, a kind of conditional. And now we get the same kind of turn using the word nevertheless, and he can't undo that nevertheless. Trump thinks he'll prevail. Nevertheless, he won't. So congratulations to Biden-Harris, who keep on winning every janky coup effort and nevertheless have been disciplined and focused and can now begin the transition from Trumpian madness to stability, sanity, and maybe even a dash of serenity. My guest today is Andy Slavitt. He's a former acting administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, a position he held from March 2015 to January 
2017. Andy also hosts the terrific podcast, In the Bubble. Andy, welcome to Trumpcast. Thank you, Virginia. So you've been a steady hand, a surprisingly steady hand on the wheel for me and for many other people throughout the pandemic. So thank you for your service, first off. That's nice of you. Thank you. So my aunt, Peggy Laughlin, who was a a wonderful woman who actually had worked with polio victims early in her life, died of COVID-19 in May. That Mm. was the first wave. And now we're coming to the second wave. I sort of got used to ultimately how to deal with the mobile morgues outside my house and Brooklyn in the spring and the constant wailing of sirens. But I guess I want to ask you, now that we're approaching another time like that, what can what we can expect this winter? Well, the part of the problem was, and I'm so sorry about your aunt. Thank you. So sad. It's hard. Is it apparently nobody who didn't witness the sirens personally actually believed it? Hmm. You know, we, we just we have this we we very literal people, apparently, in this country where the people in Texas and Florida, while New York was going through this, one would think they would say, oh, let's protect ourselves. So let's just come here. Instead, they said they patted themselves on the back and said, aren't we smart? This is a whether they said it was a blue state problem or whatever they said. And I, that has continued to happen throughout mm-hmm. the year as, as the virus does what viruses do. It goes to find places where it hasn't been before and where it's easiest to travel. And it makes landfall, right? Yeah. And so, so you know, I, I, I was calling governors over the summer and, I, and up north, when, and they're like, hey, things look fine here in Minnesota and Wisconsin. I said, that's because nobody's going there. And people mm-hmm. are outdoors. Mm-hmm. They have more attractive states. Maybe you'd get more virus. But people are going people are in the south now, and they're indoors because of the winter. And and because of the summer, and now the exact thing is happening here in the winter. Some of the differences in this wave are, one, it is it's pretty much national right now. Second is in the first wave was very urban, and then maybe some bedroom communities. Now it's urban, rural, and the spread is now happening, small family gatherings. And you know we know, we know a little bit more now than we knew in the spring. And back then, remember, we thought we couldn't touch packages? Oh, yeah. Grocery, yeah. Right? Turns out our groceries were okay. But the thing aerosols in a pretty bad way, meaning if you walk out of a room and you had COVID and it's a small room and not very well ventilated, if I walk in there 8, 10, 12 hours later, I could, and I'd stay there for a little while, I could inhale your, uh, basically the, your CO2 and, and get the virus. So Trillions of uh, my shed pathogens. Yeah, so be careful. But yeah. Yeah, so it's particularly dangerous now that we're all indoors. I wonder if your idea that people kind of can't picture what's happening in in states that don't share their politics and culture happening to them, which is you know just a kind of a sort of astounding state either of media images or of the kind of just perception crisis in the in the United States that we just don't seem to share each other's problems anymore. I wonder if partly that comes from the early idea that this this was communicated by touch, that you had to like really come into contact with someone that had us aerosolizing everything and using antibacterial everything. And that, in fact, this sort of revelation fairly early on, although the news didn't spread fast enough, that it was aerosol, the aerosolized virus, that, that that message didn't get to some of the red states who were less affected. And thus you had this kind of mistaken idea that you could have smoking sections and non-smoking sections and that smoke one place wouldn't affect another. 
I just know that even Brett Stevens at the New York Times wrote a piece saying, why should Oklahomans, you know, have to do what they do in New York? Right. You know, and that was, you know, overused word, but once again, divisive. Well, you know, you, you may be right, but I think it's probably less literal than that. I think there are okay. kind of mental images that are challenging for us. For one, people in this country tend to think bad things don't happen here. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we see this, this kind of thing that happens in Africa and in Asia. Mm. And so, so we have a little bit of a challenge um, with that. Secondly, I think I may not be right, but I think some of it is race. Mm -hmm. When we learn that this is happening in black and brown communities and with essential workers, low income of any color, it causes people to say, oh, I feel safer. And it's a very natural thing. It's not necessarily just racism, although there's some of that too. But there's some amount of, oh, it's not as likely to happen to me. And then there's the, this notion where it's impossible to sense the danger. So if you're in California and you want to know if it's a bad air day because of the smoke and fire, you can look outside and you can see it on the news. This is a virus that's invisible completely and it spreads exponentially. And where that plays with your mind is if it were October 1st and now it's what, towards the end of November, Within that period of time, in many communities, the amount of spread is tripled or quadrupled. So something that was safe to do in October, maybe go spend 15 minutes in the grocery store, is less safe today. The exact same activity six weeks later is less safe. So we're not used to these kind of cognitive issues. And so it makes it hard for us to comprehend. And then, of course, there's a whole political element to, I just don't believe it. I don't want to believe it. It's a, you know, it's a fraud and all that stuff, too. That brings me to another question that you've touched on in your podcast and has been important to this podcast, which is that many of us have seen in Trump's rise the axiom of Roger Ailes, the late Roger Ailes, that politics are downstream from culture. But one of the many surprises of this pandemic is that public health appears to be downstream from culture also. I mean, what the hey? Masks are a liberal affectation like avocados or lattes or something? Uh -huh. I did not call it. Avocado toast. Yeah. So it's funny you say that. I, I was talking last week to the chairman of the National Health System in, in England. Yeah. And I said, how's it going? And he said, it's going really badly, actually. I said, well, what does that mean? He said, you know, people are exhausted. People are really tired. It's a lot of people. They they're sad to be back here again in a second wave. And I said, oh, I said, is it political? Said, Whatever do you mean? I said, well, you know, does one side of this feel one way? Or, and he said, no. I said, well, in this country, like how you react to the pandemic really says what kind of American you are, which tribe you're in. Yeah. And he said, you know, I had been reading that, but I don't understand it. And I find it impossible to deal with. He said, here we have people who may not wear masks because they don't believe they work or they're exhausted or they wear them very reluctantly, but it has absolutely zero to do with our identity. And I think when Trump sort of jumped the shark, when he recognized See, my, my belief about Trump is he gets all his ideas from his rallies. Hmm. He's a populist, right? He just tests what works. And, you know, he sees an image on TV of people not wearing masks that carry a Trump sign. He doesn't want to disappoint his people. And so he goes with it. And if he gets a lot of response, a lot of Twitter likes or, you know, big noise in his rallies, he found something. Mm -hmm. I literally think that's how he made this decision. But the decision was really costly. Yeah, I know. It's astounding. I mean, just that it became a sharks and jets issue. It's like, you know, whatever patch you wear. 
On the other hand, I was telling an English friend of mine, I have no idea how they tell sharks and jets apart when it's completely random who doesn't wear a mask. I mean, it's, it's, it's very useful here for just, you know, glaring when you're deciding who to glare at on the street. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So about a month ago, and you were talking about Trump at his rallies, but while he was still campaigning before he was decisively voted out of office, I don't know if you saw that, but he is not yeah. going to be the president yeah. anymore. Soundly. Yeah. While he's still campaigning, the soon-to-be former president, Donald Trump, that's his title now, really doubled down on his indifference to the disease. And he had said, it is what it is in that interview. And now he started to say, I, I've got to paraphrase this, but something like, there's nothing we can do about COVID-19. And he wasn't even talking about herd immunity, or it'll go away like magic, or chicken pox parties, or uh, hydroxychloroquine, or bleach in your veins. He was talking about just apathy, plain old apathy. At the time, I thought that he was still saying something that he sort of edged up to saying, which is, you know, none of us, not you, Joe Biden, not me, caused this, right? Like, it's not our fault that it started. But then I realized he was just saying, I've given up on containing this. I'm not going to, you know, go with God, knock yourselves out. I'm not doing this. I'm going to finish out my campaign, and then I'm going to go to work on my coup, and you guys can die, not die, wear masks, not wear masks, get ventilators, not get ventilators, but I'm out. Did that, did you hear him that way? And how did that affect the second wave. See, first of all, I'm still basking in your the beginning of that statement you made that he's no longer going to be the president of our country any longer. Yeah, I wanted to break that news here. Yeah. That he's won for the 41st, 42nd time as of uh, the Pennsylvania decision. Yeah, it's pretty great. Yeah, it's <laughs> just so, so I mean, I was, I was sorry to digress, but I was reading just a little tiny freaking snip article that, you know, Biden's going to go back and protect the Arctic wildlife again. And I just got a tear in my eye. Yeah. And I was like, what the heck am I feeling? I'm like, that's optimism. Yeah. That's hope. That's it's optimism. It's like thawing or something. Yeah. So it's it's incredible. So you know, th- that statement, my insight into Trump, you may disagree, is that it's all, it's all a matter of how it reflects on him. So when he says this, makes a statement like that, it's the like, what else would you have yeah. me do? And it's sort of like when he said, hey, black people, hey, vote for me. What else do you have to lose? I don't have to make an effort. I just have to, I'm at the point where I just have to prove that, like, you know, I'm better than the alternative because, you know, he never put his shoulder into this. He was unwilling to do that for a couple of reasons. One is I don't think he likes the hard work. It wasn't very for that. Secondly, anything he did, he sensed he would get accountability for. So he likes to do the, every time there was a wisp of good news, he liked to do the press conference and say, um, look what I did. I saved millions of lives. But whenever there was any bad news, he just wasn't to be found. And they would chase him down. And when, when someone would put him down and ask him a question, he'd just be like, you know, I have to find a way of demonstrating that I'm doing the smartest thing possible right now. And that this is all planned. And so I think it's, I think it's, everything's an excuse. Yeah. 
but the impact that had, I actually think was in some ways a positive one because it actually, he actually said what we've been observing, ah. which is, I am giving up. And you know what? We don't pay people to give up when people are dying, when people are hurting, when people are in need. And I think I was so glad he said that. Interesting. Because um, yeah. I thought it was a moment of like, I'm freaking helpless here. And I'm like, yes, you are. Yeah. And we're not. Yeah. I don't know if you saw, but Olivia Nuzzi had a piece on basically Trump's own experience with COVID-19. And it started with him saying, am I going to be one of the dyers? D-I-E-R-S. Did you see mm. this? And no. Yes. Yeah, a very strange word, right? And I, I feel like he did, part of him did go, unlike Boris Johnson, who got the disease and, and people say came to Jesus and decided to take right. it seriously. Trump sort of, I don't know, I think he became like one of the dyers at that point. <laughs> like, or at least his enthusiasm for his press conferences and his hokey quackery and the, you know, strange announcements that it was going to go away soon and the anti-mask and all that stuff just kind of dried up. He just shrunk. I don't know if his, you think his encounter or his sickness did that or if he was just really licked, you know? I mean, he's a guy that just yesterday finally announced in its strange prose that he lost the election. And I think he was sort of acting like a defeated almost before that. You know, I mean, that may be a slightly different interpretation. Yeah. I, I think Boris Johnson was truly grateful for the amazing medical care. Yeah. And I think Donald Trump feels like he, his superhuman qualities are why he mm. survived. Like, I think he, I don't think he credits medicine. I think he knows he got good treatment at Walter Reed. I don't doubt that. But I think he thinks, hey, I'm immune. And there are people, there are a certain number of people who come through this, believe it or not. And I've seen this in other people who are like, well, hey, now I'm immune, so I can do whatever yeah. I want. And this is a guy who like relishes in that I can do whatever I want. Yeah. And so I think he went through that. Um, and then he had this sort of steroid buzz potentially. But after that, I think you may be right. Oxygen for him are these rallies. He was like, I'm not going to be told I can't do these rallies. So once he was doing these rallies again, I think that sustained him. But God knows what happened after that. I mean, I have another, I have another unrelated idea that he's actually kind of unafraid there are ways that he has, he has such a morbid way of talking that I think he thinks death, like the virus, is what it is. That's what, look, am I going to be one of the dyers? Did not mm. look like someone, mm. you know, staring down the barrel of just like life cold underground. And part of his, I don't know, part of his death cult, part of his willingness to let even his supporters die in these huge groups by, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid of coronavirus pathogens is, um, I don't know, it's like, it really makes me think that, that he's, some of that rapture discourse of his evangelical followers and Mike Pompeo kind of soaked in that dying to own the libs might be somehow the way this ends. Yeah, I mean, we'll never know. But I think that like, he's used to keeping his score a different way. Mm -hmm. Like his way of keeping score is, do I get good ratings? Am I popular? Am I interesting? Can I dominate a news cycle? Use my wits to come out on top. People, other people dying. Yeah. Like, I don't think he's got a scorecard for that. Like, I mean, I don't, like, I literally don't think he cares. I think we saw him like once or twice slightly moved by something. Like when that kid in Syria was hurt and he saw an image mm -hmm. and he decided he wanted to drop a bomb on <laughs> Syria. And then I think 
when he had a friend in the hospital, he, he didn't get choked up, but I think he was like, I don't think he's a sentimental guy, but I think it, the, that's the closest I've seen to him having like human expression. And like it's when I talked to David from early on yeah. in this thing, and David said, like, literally it's impossible to get an A in the pandemic, yeah. but it's virtually impossible not to get a B. Huh. All you have to do is show like an ounce of humanity, show a little bit of warmth and caring and compassion, which is impossible not to be able to do for everybody on the planet except this guy. He, yeah. he literally couldn't, he couldn't mourn with us. He couldn't yes. grieve with us. He could, if he had done that, um, it would have been much better than nothing that he did. Well, I want to ultimately get to Biden and Biden's team for the, the dealing with the pandemic. And Biden, of course, I think is going to be, is the opposite when it comes to grief, compassion, mourning. He's the perfect person, I've said on this show, to kind of sit shiva with someone or sit at your hospital bedside. Um, but there was another approach to the pandemic that I don't think was driven by a particular kind of passion, but by a will to power. And I'm thinking of, of Governor Andrew Cuomo. Sometimes, maybe mostly, governance is not driven by our sweeter emotions, but by a kind of, I don't know, in his case, a kind of paternalism, a kind of field general, field marshal idea that he was going to save lives, it would redound to his greater glory, and he would keep an eye on the logistics, which seemed to fascinate him in his press conferences and ended up fascinating the people of New York. And he managed to rally us to do this thing. And because during Trump times, we talked so much about toxic masculinity and patriarchy and rape culture, it's hard to identify that good paternalism, and I may get in trouble for saying this, but there was a way that, you know, Cuomo was always talking about himself as a father, as having his daughters over and kicking the tires of their boyfriends and, you know, having socially distanced times with his daughters. And then also just, man, I loved his press conferences where he engaged our intelligence, our courage to tell us what was next with the ventilator supplies, what he needed in terms of money, how we were doing with the curve. You know, it was almost like a video game tuning in each day to say, how are we doing? Made you feel like a hero that you were just, you know, sitting at home cooking your own food and not getting out of your pajamas. And that kind of leadership that may or may not be inspired by Cuomo's being a good person or a bad person, but that's like, that's why why I thought people wanted power. That like get in the history books that way. And I don't know if you felt that same way about Cuomo's leadership, but he doesn't say anything about him in the future, doesn't say anything about him in other ways. But man, that was like a wartime president in that first wave. I mean, do you agree? That's what I ex- want from a leader. You know, uh, Barack Obama used to have this expression he would use every once in a while. He liked basketball analogies. And he would say, that person likes to have the ball in their hands in the fourth quarter. Yes. Yes. And that guy could be a dick. You know, I, I don't think right. that says he right. ble- his heart bleeds for anyone. I just, but, no. but that's, but, I want that guy push, to have the ball in his hand in the fourth right. quarter. When push comes to shove, like that's the guy who wants to take the shot. And by the way, just to bail you out on the masculinity part. Yeah. Jacinda Ardern, uh, Angela Merkel. I mean, <laughs> there were more women leaders than men leaders who did this. It was, your, your craving for Cuomo was that because it was the opposite of what we were getting at the yeah. national level. Honesty, truth, straight story, so, someone showing a human side. And, and so and he's a, Cuomo is a complicated yeah. guy. And there's some people, by the way, that are horrible in peacetime and good in wartime. Um, and I'm not saying he's horrible in peacetime necessarily, but that's the moment he shined because he was very comfortable 
with the tough stuff. I mean, we, you and I were talking before we started about the crown. I gotta say, I mean, maybe I'm seeming, seeming sentimental now, but that was a very, very difficult time during the apex to be in New York city. And, uh, he seemed almost Churchillian, you know? Yeah. And I also, I felt like I'd never been led before. Like it was not culture. It was not, I mean, I have never been in an army. I haven't had a coach or like a serious coach, you know? And I like, I think I, I was like, oh, this is what it's like. You're looking to the leader, not for his style, not for his fame, not for even his elegance or his lack of neuroticism like Obama. You're looking for him to him for instructions, you know? And that yeah. was, I thought, very, very powerful. And I really actually, for all Biden's strengths, I really hope that there's kind of a Cuomo person that we can look to to just tell us what the hell to do. What you saw in Cuomo was that you trusted him. Yeah. And you know what I could say about Biden with, I think, a reasonable amount of certainty is he combines compassion, competence, and a level of experience and calm that, you know, I mean, in retrospect, it may be that he was actually designed by God for this moment. And I say that with whatever you believe, you know, I mean, I, I'm being a little bit tongue in cheek, yeah. but you know, sometimes that yeah. happens. It's like 2020 was a horrible test uh, and of everything we were made of and everything we've been failing at. And it got to that point. And by the way, it could get back there, but we saw um, what can happen in this country when we just, or when we just disregard people. And then here comes this guy who had been a failed presidential candidate mm -hmm. twice. Nobody thought he was a particularly good candidate. People thought he might've been past his prime. Nobody thought he was a good campaigner. And he just emerged and said, and has said, and all of the right things, I think, and brought in all of the right people. And like, I don't think Joe's head will hit the pillow and have a good night's sleep until the country's safe again. You know, I, I really like hearing that. And, you know, we sometimes I think the country is, a, a model for the country is Hunter Biden. In other words, broken, in recovery, and in profound need of Joe Biden. <laughs> so <laughs> I think Hunter is like our, our American archetype right now. So what do you think of his team? I know you've covered some of this on your show, but you know I have no reason to doubt, and I've lo looked over everything he's said. He has chosen a limited range of issues to really focus on. I, in the beginning and for the foreseeable future, and number one is COVID. There are only four issues, actually, on it, uh, which I, I really like, which is uh, COVID, economy, racial justice, climate. You could do worse. You know, that's, those are, those are good. <laughs> right. So what do you think of his team? What do you think of his priority number one handling the pandemic? And what are they going to do? Well, so this this isn't his first rodeo. He's been through this with Ebola. He's been through tough moments. I think he knows how to prioritize and he knows what's important. And, you know, what the team tells me is, you know, the question I ask him is, what, what I've not been in any of his briefings. What kind of questions does he ask? So I figure you can learn a lot from that, right? And one of the things he, he asks constantly is if you say something's happening, he wants to know how that's affecting people of color. He wants to know how it's affecting people in rural America, because he says, you know, as bad as things are here, go find a rural community with, with a hospital that's much smaller and much less experienced, and it's, it's going to be worse. So he's looking for the message, basically, is everybody matters. And that's the team takes away. And, you know, th that's so important because the culture gets set. So you do that twice. Right. And people will never come to you again without making that sure that they have. That's great. Right. And having done something. So you set you set your priorities that way. Number two, 
I think we have had an empty bully pulpit, as we've talked about, and I think it will be difficult, but he will make progress because I think he wants to be a uniter and I think he wants to heal the country. And I think he's going to say, you know, look, folks, um, people are going to try to tell you that this is a political thing or whatever. It's not. Mm -hmm. It's not. It's just about getting, that's just not true. It's just about us getting through this. And that will, I think, have some impact where he's got to bring his skills, where he's got to bring his A game is with Congress. He needs to be able to get a package out of Mitch McConnell that supports the public through the remainder of this. Yeah. And that's going to be difficult, but because the way it tends to work is you don't get something in Congress unless you give something. Now, Biden is the kind of person that will ask Mitch McConnell, what is it that you want? And figure that out. And more, more so than anybody else who would be inclined to start with, here's what I want. Mm-hmm. But the flaw in that is it's possible Mitch McConnell doesn't want anything other than perhaps to destroy Biden-Harris or to not play along. But he is, he is a skilled legislator. He's going to have to get a deal done, a stimulus deal and a deal that puts money into unemployment and helping small businesses and, and helping us through the crisis. So if he does those things, you know, then, then his operational chops are going to come into play with the vaccine distribution. And we can talk about, talk about that. But we are going to be, you know, we're a couple of weeks away from beginning vaccine distribution. Amazing. Yeah. So rural hospitals also is something you recently talked about on your show. And I just spoke to a friend who does medical ethics at a hospital in New York and has done a lot of consulting throughout the pandemic on specific issues, ones I hadn't thought about. So we had heard early on when Milan locked down and from Italy that they were having to make tough decisions about whose lives to save. And that's the, you know, that's the terrible sort of Sophie's Choice moment that we hoped would not afflict us in the U.S. And Cuomo at least claimed that everyone who needed help, every life they could save, they did save, at least during that first first wave in New York. And uh, who knows about that? But anyway, this ethicist was telling me that there are really small, interesting things in hospitals, interesting issues in hospitals. The one she cited was that doctors in general didn't want to do chest compressions and CPR on patients with organ failure who were probably not long for this world because especially chest compressions and CPR release a lot of virus into the air. Mm. Um, And if they weren't going to be saved anyway. And so the the hospitals have kind of quietly suspended. And I shouldn't say this, that this is across the board, but some of the hospitals in New York City suspended the usual regulation that you follow a family's orders to not resu- to resuscitate, or if they don't have a DNR, that you have to resuscitate right. them. Because you need the ventilator, you need, you know, and doctors want a lot of leave to make those decisions because these are like, these are now very, require a lot of creativity and dexterity to solve. And I was interested in that kind of thing, that, that those kind of suspensions go on. But also at the suggestion that this has become very sophisticated in cities, and surely in rural areas, you know, they may still be figuring out how to how to turn a turn someone over so they're on their belly or the early things. Or for all I know, they're still giving hydroxychloroquine. Like the gulf between rural hospitals and city hospitals on ethical matters, on uh, just equipment and experience, just seems experience, yeah. yawning. Yeah, certainly standard of care and experience. I mean, so Scott Atlas, otherwise known as the Rudy Giuliani of the medical profession. Or maybe Rudy Giuliani is the uh, Scott Atlas of the yes. legal profession. I yeah. don't know which. You mean I'm charlatan which, and blowhard and yeah. 
completely. I mean, the fact he literally has a law degree, and Scott Atlas literally has a medical degree, and that's the qualification that Trump has. And, and he and, and you know and seems to seems to you know agree with the things that Trump. And agrees at, sorry, with. Atlas is it? Is he the DO? He's a he's an osteopath. No, oh, no, 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 no. That's the White House doctor. Who's another interesting person? But but no, Atlas is the guy who bumped out. Oh, yeah. Fauci and Burks, and he he sends out a graph like every day or two on Twitter that shows how much how much massive hospital room there is in the U.S. He basically does some analysis which shows how many beds exist, mm-hmm. and to, and and then all of the deniers jump all over and say, "See, um, there's nothing to worry about." Right. And, and I have this fantasy where Scott Atlas bumps into an ICU nurse in New York and tells her, see, there's nothing to worry about after she's got off her shift yeah. for the day. And then I, I'm just sitting there eating popcorn watching. Yeah. Um, that's my yes. fantasy. I, I but, like it. Right. Where she like clocks yeah, him. It'll be fun. Yeah. Right. In so many ways. So the truth is, you're exactly right. There are hundreds of subtle ways that are short of we're not you know, letting you into the ICU. Yeah. I mean, just so take it as extreme. Okay, there, let's say you're in a hospital and you have one COVID patient, 50 doctors, 50 nurses, all the equipment in the world. That person's going to get great care. Second person, third person. By the time you get to a, a ratio where you've got nurses that have worked 20-hour shifts, mm-hmm. et cetera, or conversely, you're in a rural area where you've seen you've got doctors who've seen two COVID patients in their life, and, and they may know what they read. They may have pulled down some online article. It may not have. They may, they may have a colleague in an urban center who's seen people. They may not. But, you know, the death rate on, on ventilators in rural America is much, much higher um, than in urban centers. And that's typical with medicine. That's not just because medicine is still a practice. It's not, you know, it requires people mm-hmm. to do things. And it's a guessing game. And do people make choices like the one you mm-hmm. described all the time? But in New York, if the, if the EMT doesn't get to someone for another hour, um, because they're so they we were so busy in April, you wouldn't count that necessarily as somebody that they was purposely let die, but it was somebody that because of the capacity in New York that it happened frequently. Um, but I will tell you, like the I, I want to focus a little bit on the positive yeah. or the story you told about the the chest yeah. compressions. The EMTs that went out to people's homes and gave people mouth to mouth all April in New York, man, you can, can you can imagine these people knew exactly what they were doing. And I know nurses who 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 sat and held hands with some people who were highly infectious, knowing that they were themselves exposed. People with kids. There's so many heroes out there. Yeah, were they able to not to not get it? No, in both those cases that I know, the people actually got got COVID and knew that. And, and the reason they got COVID is because they were told by the place they worked that they had sufficient PPE, um, and they were describing that they would. They would look, hunt for surgical masks on the ground to pick up, and uh, because sometimes that's all, that's all they had. Yeah, it's astounding. Back to the point you made about Biden, you know, his focus on people of color, people in rural hospitals reminds me that of when the CDC struck various words out of its vocabulary, or Trump had words taken out of its vocabulary, and just like the height of cruelty, and one of them was vulnerable. Which is, you know, we're in this might makes right administration and we've been dealing with it for so long that even just to think about vulnerable populations, vulnerable sick people as needing our responsive or requiring responsibility, care, discipline is like it's like what you said about the Arctic areas that Biden wants to preserve. It's it's it takes a whole inversion 
of, you know, of like the kind of punch in the face public discourse that we've had for four years. And we do all have to, I think, invest in that, that taking care of the most vulnerable is an obligation, a, a societal obligation. On the question of public health and culture. So, you know, you're familiar with Ebola and other and other pandemics and epidemics. And, you know, we'd like to think when Biden says, well, I'll believe science. And when, you know, those posters that just say kindness matters and science is real. Um, I don't I don't know. I think in some ways that overlooks the fact that public health is always a sticky anthropological issue. And maybe you can tell me otherwise. Maybe there's a world where they can, where public health can just be conducted free of cultural constraints. But, you know, even when we are heroes with South Korea that had tests out within a week of the first case and isolated everyone and had people basically in hazmat suits, separated them from their families, um, you know, that's like what a perfect society would do. But, you know, we're, we're Americans, we're freaks. We have ideological battles, and no wonder we, you know, dealt with it this way. And I'm sure the English, you know, had some kind of stiff upper lip vaccine. I mean, sorry, like the uh, during the Blitz or something, where they would just, you know, muscle through it, or maybe, maybe, maybe less so now. But you know, maybe it was inevitable that it would become this culturally sticky issue, even if Trump hadn't been in power. That we'd have anti-maskers. And, you know, and now anti-vaxxers who we're, we're facing. And is there a way to steer the culture in a different direction? It's funny. It's sort of where my book, I've got a book coming out in March called Preventable. Yeah. Oh, good. And it's sort of where the book is kind of lands even more than the politics is like, you know, at, at some level, the virus shows us our ugly. Yeah. Right. I mean, it shines a mirror on you and the good too. I mean, but it showed us a lot more of our ugly that is there every day. We kind of can ignore it. And it's sort of like, you know, we've got a lot of indifference in this country. I mean, you know, we get a lot of indifference to a lot of people dying that, um, you know, I don't think I thought we had. Uh, we have an aversion to sacrifice. I mean, my, my grandmother, like, she went three years without drinking coffee during the Depression or World War II. Or I can't go a morning without drinking coffee. Wait, coffee without, was too like, expensive? Yeah. 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 I mean, we had a 10-year depression and a six-year world war. And then people came to this country in chains and, they're, and, and people who left this other countries as refugees, like they know suffering. And so like, no, I'm sorry, not going to a bar with your buddies is not suffering. And so like, we have this, we are very privileged as a nation and we expect our wealth and our science to protect us. And when it doesn't, we fold like a tent. Yeah. I mean, if we had to rely on one another, I mean, if this were, if we were like 10 of, sort of like 10 of us in a cave, like, you know, we would, been, we, we would have been like in every other country at 10 people in the cave, they'd come by the American cave. And you'd be like, yeah, that one strong person yeah. is really full and they're nine dead people. <laughs> yeah. Right. And that's kind of would have been, that'd be, that'd be us. So what do we do with that? Like when this thing is over, what do we do with that? And people are like, let's talk about the next pandemic. And I'm like, no, what we learned during this pandemic is that a lot of kids have to go to school to get lunch. What we learned in this pandemic is that many kids don't have internet at home. What we learned in this pandemic is that there are a lot of people on the edge of mental health crises. We learned all of those things yeah. and more of things that, that were true before the pandemic. They were very true during the pandemic. 
And they're up to us as to how true they're going to be after the pandemic. And, you know, this is, this is where it takes dialogue. This is where you have to invite people in and do the uncomfortable and, and be able to look at the ugly and say, yeah, this is ugly, but we can fix it. Um, and it's the same ugly, perhaps it's behind some of the politics that got ugly, because as you said, politics is downstream. But without a doubt, when I look at, uh, all you have to do is look at Hong Kong, right next to, right next to China, had 100, as of September, 100 people died in Hong Kong. Part of it is experience. They've been through this before. Part of it is community. And, you know, you look at most places in the world, they figured it out. We didn't have those things. And we also didn't adapt very well. And at some point, as you said, the president and many of his supporters were like, okay, it's just going to be easier to just accept all these deaths. Yeah. First, they were like, all these people aren't going to die. You guys are alarmists. Then they're like, fine, all these people are going to die. But they're just people. Yeah, who cares? And initially, it's just a demo side. And then also, you know, the the fact that many Trumpite counties already have high levels of diseases of despair. And, you know, this is just another one, potentially, that yeah, there's, it just, it just, there was such, there's such defeatism that is especially sad. But fortunately, the uh, Trump voters were in the minority. We have Biden coming up and a, a new interest in the vulnerable, the sick. Yeah. Can I say one more thing? One more thing, though, just to be, a, to try to be understanding. Yeah. Like, I do think, like, if you're um, part of your complaint, if you're a Trump supporter, your general Gestalt complaint is that there are people out there to try to control mm-hmm. us. Yeah. They'll tell us what to do. They think they know better. They are virtue signalers. I don't know if they use those words, but and phony intellectualism doesn't get us to where whatever it is. They just and they sure as hell don't understand us, and they never ask our opinion, and they've ignored us. So you know, if you believe any of that, even even the small amount of that, then you go, okay, now they're telling us to wear masks. They're telling us first. They told us we had to bend the curve, right? Then we said, okay, fine, we're gonna we're gonna bend the curve, and then. We got past that, and now they want us to do something else, and now they want to do something else. They keep changing the ball game, and so you know, I don't think we get there by the reason I mentioned that Virginia is like I don't think we get there by more fully being able to articulate our yeah. position. Yes, I think we got that nailed. Yeah, I think we have to try to understand how it happens and what how it might look from someone else's eyes. Yeah, I think that's right. One of the one of the few things that very early on that crystallized something for me about Trumpites that I've never forgotten is just the the contempt for Michelle Obama because she told told us what to eat. Just mm-hmm. everything about that. So like extracting all the other anti-Obama spirit, I just suddenly thought, "Oh, that's what her that's how her campaign for health was read by lots of Americans telling us what to eat. And my mother's from Appalachia. She says social workers always came down to tell them, eat less meat, eat more meat, eat less carbs, eat whatever, while she was growing up, that they should not cook their greens as much as they did. And, you know, by the end, you're just like, get the fuck away from me. You know, like, um, and, and that, that did make sense. And if, you know, if you don't want to be told to eat, to drink big gulps and eat trans fats, then of course you don't want to be told to wear masks, not leave your house, keep your kids home. It just is um, especially controlling. But, you know, Cuomo did a really nice job talking about the strengths of New Yorkers and there are strengths of Oklahomans, there are strengths of North Dakotans that maybe a good leader could play to and understand. Andy Bashir in Kentucky. Yes, 
Exactly. Yeah. He, to, to take your, your point of Churchill and, and sacrifice, he said, look, we, we, the greatest generation's taken, but the only way we're going to get through this is if we're the nicest generation, the, kind, the kindest generation. Amazing. And he called on Kentuckians to be just kind to one another. My God, McConnell got lucky to have, to have a Democrat going into the election, doing a, a beautiful job with COVID, or at least messaging around COVID. All right, let's talk about the vaccine. So you are pretty bullish on it, it sounds like, or on them. I should say. Yeah. I mean, look, let, let's, let's start with this. We can start every conversation just like with first principles. Vaccines are freaking amazing. Things. Yes. Like the greatest invention ever. Yeah. I mean, and so, you know, in, the, in 1963, the year before the measles vaccine, like 7 million kids died of the measles in this country. I mean, like you don't want to go back to a world where we're like, hey, you know, I don't love the vaccine. You know, that's not my favorite thing. No, vaccines are what are are an important part of the world because viruses are a huge part of this world. And on January 11th, we got sent from China the uh, the sequence to um, this pathogen. And on December 13th, um, we're going to start putting it in people's arms on a pretty highly scaled basis. That is freaking amazing. Andy Slavitt is a former acting administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. He also hosts the podcast In the Bubble. Thanks very much for being here, Andy. So great to be here. And that's it for today's show. What did you think? Come find us on Twitter. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And while you're at it, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. To join, go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan and engineered by Richard Stanislaw. Happy holidays. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.